Hey, it's Gabriel and Alex, and this is episode ten of Life on the Brink. We we've hit double digits. We've finally done it. Cross that line. <laughs> <laughs> and today's episode is all about mantas, specifically reef mantas, scientifically known as Mobula alfredo. Alfredi, <laughs> I think you'll find. Help myself. <laughs> so I, I did the backstory and trying to figure out what it means. Mobula is the hardest bit of this. So I'm going to start with the, the easy bit, which is Alfredi. According to the Australian Museum, in 1868, the then director of the Australian Museum, a guy called Gerard Kreft, was the first one to describe the species. He, he named it after Queen Victoria's son, Prince Alfred, who survived an assassination attempt in Clontarf in Sydney in 1868. So that's why it's called Alfred. I, I think he also like posed for a photo with a court one at some stage. So he had some attachment to it beforehand. It wasn't just like a random, right. you know, sucking <laughs> up to the prince thing. But yeah, so Mobula though is, is kind of less known. I, I couldn't find any authoritative source on it, but... There's this website that I sort of fell in love with while I was looking for this <laughs> called Etty Fish, which is like all about the etymology of fish scientific <laughs> That's names. so good. It's like this group of people that have just solely dedicated themselves to figuring out why <laughs> why fish are scientifically named certain things. And for this, there's three explanations they give for Mobula. And, and I saw some other sources that said similar things. The first one is the most obvious and so probably the true one, which is that it's just derived from mobilis, mobilist, which is Latin for movement. And probably something about their migration or long-ranging movements because they're such big animals and they right. range around the sea. The second idea is because the guy who initially came up with the name Mobula also mentioned some Italian vernacular to Villa Cornuta, which means horn table. I'm sure I absolutely nailed the pronunciation of that. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it could be an allusion to some Romance languages which refer to these horn tables as movables or non-fixed furnishings. So like there could be some correlation with they move a long way and they have those horn-like things out the front. Uh, uh, so like that that together is why it's the Latin mobilis cool. and then, then it goes to mobula because it's a genus. Uh, and the last idea is that it has similarities to a locally used name in the Azor Islands. So some combination of those things is why it's called mobula. So mobula alfredi is movement named after prince alfred cool that's actually yeah. i was gonna say it's actually pretty cool <laughs> a lot more interesting than source <laughs> <laughs> anyway our uh, guest on this episode is part of this fantastic citizen science based group called project manta and we'll get into what project manta does in the interview but broad terms they're working to catalog and understand all the manta rays along australia's east coast it's a huge feat and they use photos and data collected by everyday snorkelers and scuba divers to do this. In the episode, we hear about what it's like to have a manta swim belly up to get a better look at you, get the rundown on the world's only pink manta ray and learn about how manta rays get birthed like little burritos. <laughs> it's just so cool. <laughs> little burritos. Oh. This is episode 10 of Life on the Brink, featuring the reef manta ray and marine biologist Asia Haynes. I guess I grew up by the ocean and, uh, you know, spent my whole childhood in and out of the water. My parents are kind of self-proclaimed seafarers, so we grew up with very watery vibes in our life. And um, 
I, I traveled a lot in my twenties and I think I just continually kept getting this pull back to, you know, there's some major issues out there and bumbling around the world isn't really being engaged in them. And so I, I got drawn to return to university and, and be part of, part of the solution, I guess, um, to some of the issues that I was seeing in different places. Cool. So what made you pick manta rays? <laughs> um, well, it's a bit corny, but I had a dive. Uh, the first dive that I did with manta rays was in 2008 and I was just blown away by them. I think I don't even know if I really knew they existed before I dived with them and just having this huge animal soaring above me so gently and and just so inquisitive, I just thought, wow, this has got to be one of the most spectacular creatures on earth. I want to know everything about it. And when I got out of the water and started doing a little bit of my own research, I was like, we actually don't know much about these animals at all. And so I looked at who was doing the research at that time and you needed to have a marine biology degree to be able to contribute. And so at the tender age of 29, I went and enrolled myself in university to become a marine biologist and with the goal of I'm going to work on manta rays, which seems a bit whimsical, but it actually worked. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think that's the best way to go about it. (laughs) (laughs) So were you just solely focused on getting into manta rays when you went back to do this marine bio degree? Uh, So I returned to university at University of Queensland because I thought, no, I want to be where this Project Manta is based, even though my aspirations for manta ray research were a bit more global than that. I was thinking of going to these other places where other work was going on. I went and contacted all the lead academics that were involved in the project in my first year. Didn't hear back from any of them, of course, because they're busy people (laughs) and those busy people don't want to hear, I love manta rays, can I work on them? (laughs) Um, And so it took me, I, I guess, I think it was my first two years at university and then I you know, got a better understanding of what science is, what the scientific process is, rather than just, I want to save manta rays. And then I approached them again. And I was quite lucky um, to get an in in my third year in university. Uh, They needed somebody to take over their catalogue of manta rays on the east coast of Australia. And at that point, um, as a third year student, I was just right place, right time, I think. and, And they offered me that position. So, yeah, I've been with them ever since then. Hmm. And you also managed to get a bunch of your own research done in that time as well, right? Yeah, that's right. So I, um, so in my third year, I did a little third year research project with them where I looked at their reproductive activity on the East Coast. And then in my honours, I went on to look at their foraging environment at one of their key aggregation sites where they're seen to forage. So yeah, I did, I did that for my honours year, which was pretty awesome and managed to publish that paper. It took me about 18 months or something from, <laughs> from doing honours to actually getting it published. Um, that was my first first author paper, so that was a bit of a lesson in science, but yeah. <laughs> that uh, makes me feel a lot better about not publishing my master's paper yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I finished honours and my supervisor said, two weeks, you can just, just concentrate, get it done. We'll have this ready. And yeah, 18 months later and, you know, a little bit of travel and whatever in between. And yeah. I think that's the way it always goes with research. Yeah. 
So I've been, I was having a look at a, a couple of the papers you put out. Can you tell us a bit about what your PhD focuses on? Yeah, sure. So um, my PhD is concerned with the spatial ecology of manta rays. So pretty much where are they found? What habitat are they using? And, you know, how far do they move? How connected are populations? So it's, it's quite a broad topic. I recently put out a paper about their uh, habitat use at their key foraging site in the Maldives. So uh, there's this one tiny little bay there where over 200 animals can aggregate in the size of like a football field space in the water wow. feeding on. They're, they're feeding. usually solitary animals, right? Yeah, they're quite solitary when they're out in the water when they're just cruising around. So they you only really see aggregations at, at, for resources, so be it zooplankton or their use of cleaning stations. Uh, so, yeah, this is a really key spot that we know about where they aggregate in these huge numbers. And, yeah, one of my chapters was looking at why this spot. What have you uh, found so far? Is there a suggestion for why these places are so fantastic for manta rays? <laughs> Yeah, well, so this site, um, oh, so I'll, I'll just um, reverse a little bit to talk about the manta rays feeding ecology. So we presume they likely forage at depth for the most part. They're planktivores, so they eat the tiny microscopic organisms in, in the ocean. And those are a lot denser at the poles. So, you know, the, the great whales, they do these huge migrations to go and feed in Antarctica and places like that because it's such dense zooplankton down there. Whereas manta rays being endoth- uh, ectothermic, sorry, they, they don't have warm blood. They can't really go and forage in those really cold places. So they actually have to try and find enough food in tropical and subtropical waters and those are not as nutrient rich as those polar waters. So where we find plankton in high concentrations, we often find planktivores aggregating there as well. So whale sharks as well and manta rays. And we presume from satellite tagging and from stable isotope analysis that a lot of this happens at depth where plankton is concentrated. So in the mesopelagic layer around 50 to 70 meters depth, Hey, it's us. And we're just cutting in because that was a huge word and we didn't actually know what it means. <laughs> Stable isotope analysis. What is that? <laughs> now, after some quick Google searching, it's basically the principle, you are what you eat. <laughs> so they basically analyze isotopes within the animal and they can use that to figure out what animals have been eating because isotopes in food are then incorporated into animal tissue and you can figure out their diet from this. There you that's go. it. <laughs> oh, also, Asia mentioned Hanifaru Bay a little earlier. That's uh, a bay in the Maldives, so sort of south southwest off the bottom tip of India. Uh, and it's one of the like peak manta ray whale shark areas in the world. It's just this perfect hotspot where there's heaps of zooplankton in a nice warm area and they just flock to it in droves. So cool. <laughs> and that's enough of us dumbing things down. <laughs> we'll get back to it. <laughs> But in surface waters, it's these rare sites like Hanifaru Bay where the plankton becomes concentrated. And so we found tides highly influenced when you when you get these high concentrations of plankton in, in Hanifaru Bay, for example, and, and in other places as well. Cool. I also saw that you did a paper on the, the cleaning stations. Can you uh, 
describe what the cleaning stations actually are? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so cleaning stations are places on coral or rocky reefs where these small little cleaner ass will set up basically their own little territories and they will tend to other fish or other species in order to pick off ectoparasites or to clean wounds, that kind of thing. And and particular species will set up these territories and they will just feed on, on parasites. They will just spend their whole lives cleaning. And then you've got these other species on the reef that will forage on algae and different things like that. But then when, another, when a good meal turns up like the size of a manta ray, they'll actually switch their feeding behavior and they'll turn towards uh, the, the big animal that's there and they'll start <laughs> becoming a cleaner as well. So, so yeah, you get these two different types that do that. So um, that paper, we, you know, we do observe manta rays at these cleaning stations, but it's really difficult for us to pinpoint how important this behavior actually is to them. How long do they spend there? What's driving them to use one cleaning station over another cleaning station? And so we set up an array of uh, listening stations that can listen out to um, transmitters on animals. And we set up this fine scale array so that uh, it's, it's close enough that a signal from one transmitter can be picked up on multiple acoustic listening stations and, and the position can actually be triangulated. So you get this real fine scale tracking, which isn't possible by GPS technology or anything like that. So we actually could get really good location estimates for the animals. We tagged a pile of manta rays. We did surveys through this whole cleaning station region to, to look at the densities of the cleaner wrasse that were through that region and to look at the structural habitat there as well. And we found that, yeah, manta rays were targeting these places with really high concentrations of little cleaner wrasse and where it was the hard coral structures which the cleaner wrasse are associated with. So, it was pretty cool finding because we've got these large pelagic, you know, ocean wanderers coming to the reef to to visit these tiny little fish. So really cool. <laughs> yeah. So so they can basically pick up the structures of the reef that there's probably a lot of cleaner ass hiding within and they know to hang around there. Is that the idea? Well, so we think that they likely build up a bit of a cognitive map of the reef. So oh, they, wow. okay. they may, you know, chance upon cleaning stations if they're in an unfamiliar area. But certainly where we were, these are really high-use cleaning station areas that the, the manta rays likely have a memory of the landmarks there. So they, you know, may, may shift offshore at nighttime when they're going to feed and then from 6am in the morning, the aggregations at the cleaning stations will peak with the mantas coming in and, and visiting these, these particular cleaning stations that they likely know they've received good service there in the past. And, <laughs> and yeah. Five stars. <laughs> yeah, it matters. There's been a lot of work done on, on, on it with smaller fish that, that service does matter in this situation. <laughs> I love that. And you also said that you've, you had to tag a lot of these mantis, obviously, to get this data. How on earth do you get a tag on a manta ray? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, unfortunately, because they are so large, they're difficult to catch <laughs> as, as much as, you know, sharks can be caught and they can be pulled alongside a vessel and you can actually do surgeries and implant tags. They can last 10 years. It's pretty incredible. But with manta rays, we just swim behind them and we have a Hawaiian sling spear and we attach an external tether with the tag. 
So it doesn't last as long on the animal because it's not implanted, it's not surgeried into the animal, but it, it lasts long enough for the sake of these kind of studies. And, um, and yeah, it means that we can approach them as non-invasively as possible. They get a small dart head in their muscle, but they have incredible healing capacity. And quite often these tags, I think the longest we've had last was about 18 months, which was really good, but uh, average tag retention is about three months. So yeah, they've got amazing healing capacity and just work it out of their skin, I think. <laughs> That's so cool. I, I've got to ask, what, what is it like? Uh, how fast are they when you're when you're swimming up to them? Does it does it take a lot to actually catch up to them, or are they pretty slow moving? I always wear my free diving fins when I need to do tagging, just so I've got that <laughs> extra bit of propulsion behind me. But I've found um, the best way to do it is to let them know that you're there, so that they're not startled by you or anything like that. Like if if a manta ray is on a cleaning station circling around the cleaning station I'll just slowly work my way up into its space so I'm sharing its space and then I can approach it from behind and we tag on the dorsal side of the animal and it's it feels quite comfortable that I'm there and then I'll release the tag they do get startled straight away they take off like something's bitten them but often they return back down again within a couple of minutes and kind of look at you thinking oh you're a different kind of cleaner, us. That was a bite. <laughs> um, yeah, so so if I find there's not much point at all if they've got a bit of speed behind them, if they're heading off somewhere, you're not going to get there and you, you can't guarantee that your tag is going to achieve a good attachment. So I always find it's better if they're chilled. If they're not chilled, forget about it pretty much. <laughs> they're very fast. I'm just, I've also seen that they can actually jump out of the water. Is there a, is there a particular reason why they do this? Uh, so nothing concrete. There's a few different hypotheses for why they, uh, they call it breaching behaviour. So um, I'll just briefly say manta rays, so the species that I've mainly been focused on is the reef manta ray. They can grow up to five metres from wingtip to wingtip. So that's a really big animal throwing itself out of the water. Um <laughs> Some people hypothesize that they breach in response to uh, food availability. So like somewhere like Hennifaru Bay where it's really dense plankton, the manta rays actually do what appears to be a cooperative feeding kind of behavior where they use strategies that work with one another to concentrate the plankton. So there's some hypotheses that they actually breach to communicate to one another to say, hey, there's lots of food over here. Come and help. Let's get it. <laughs> um, there's also hypotheses that they do it to rid themselves of parasites or remoras. Hey, it's us again. Just jumping in. Uh, remoras. Alex, do you know what remora is? The Yoda fish. <laughs> the Yoda fish. Does that need a backstory? Because their faces look like Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, also heard them referred to by fishermen as cockroaches of the ocean oh, because wow. they keep jumping on your line when you're going fishing uh, instead of all the <laughs> stuff you want to catch and you can't eat them and then they just literally crap themselves as you pull them up because they're, that's their stress response. So, yeah, cockroaches of the ocean. Uh, they are the fish, if you ever see like any 
underwater nature documentary and there's those other fish swimming on the big whale or manta ray or shark sort of stuck to it. That's that's remoras, those ones. They're the sucker fish. Yeah. And some of them will sometimes help out the other species by picking up parasites. A lot of the time they just sit there and hitch a ride from it's spot lazy. to spot or, and, and then eat the scraps of the food that that animal's eating. They basically just evolved Velcro on their heads to stick to other animals. That's it. That's it. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the remora. That's the remora. <laughs> In some parts of the world there, I, I heard a colleague saying off the coast of Ecuador, there's this aggregation side of oceanic manta rays where they, um, where the mantas can have up to, what did she say, around like 40 remoras attached to the one manta ray at a time. And they they even like go up inside the cloaca, like five of them poking out of yeah, wow. strange little creatures. Um, so I've heard that they will breach in order to shed themselves of remoras uh, to escape. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you've got 40 <laughs> of them hanging on you, to escape predation, some people have hypothesized. It, there was a little bit of a myth that they actually breached in order to birth. Oh. So manta rays um, have live birth, so they give birth to one uh, pup every few years. And there was photographic evidence of manta rays breaching and like a pup coming out, uh, <laughs> but that was since debunked and it was found that that manta ray breaching had actually been harpooned and the mother was likely aborting the pup. So, um, oh. it, yeah, it wasn't wasn't it's not how they birth they don't need to leap from the water to birth their, their baby um yeah pretty extreme birth yeah. cycle yeah exactly <laughs> what what is the life cycle of a manta ray then do we have a good idea of what that looks like uh we have some idea so um bearing in mind birth has never been observed in the wild for these species wow. so everything that we know about it is largely from aquaria so there's a couple of different places in the world that, uh, that keep manta rays, um, Okinawa in Japan being one of them and Georgia Aquarium in the US. And so they've done studies on reproduction and I think that's where the majority of our knowledge comes from. So the manta ray is pregnant for 12 to 13 months and then live birth to one pup and very rarely two. So they are capable of um, having twins uh, or, um, yeah, Let's, let's not say they're twins. I think that's probably <laughs> not right. Uh, but having more than one pup at once, but it's very rare. And, yeah, then, then we believe there's no parental care from that point on. Males uh, mature from around 10 years of age. Some estimates are a bit older than that. Females, the estimates are 10 to 16 years age for maturity. So they're quite old animals before they're actually reproductively active. And then we have a manta ray on the East Coast here that was first photographed back in 1982 as a mature male. And we just saw him a couple of days ago off Lady Elliot Island. So we think he's in his 50s, but potentially much older. So their lifespan, they're, they're, they're quite long lived. Cool. So I know they're pretty pelagic, but how, how far do they actually travel? Uh, yeah, so they are pelagic animals. Um, I think earlier I might have said something about ocean wanderers and, and I think that that's probably a little bit misleading because uh, I, I think it was what we assumed back in the day because they are such large species, but there's actually no evidence to suggest they go wandering out into the open ocean too much. 
open ocean is is not particularly productive and so it doesn't make sense for them really to be wandering the ocean basins as such. Um, we know that the reef manta rays, we just recorded a couple of individuals on the East Coast a few years ago that had moved from around North Stradbroke Island in the south southeast Queensland all the way up to the SS Yongala. So that's a movement of about 1,150 kilometres straight line distance. And that was the largest recorded movement for this species anywhere else. Hey, uh, we're going in again. SS Yongala. The SS Yongala. So this has actually got a super cool backstory, but it's also super depressing. So brace yourself. (laughs) So (laughs) the SS Yongala was a passenger and cargo ship that sank off Cape Bowling Green in Queensland, which is just south of Townsville. Uh, And that's according to the Australian National Shipwreck Database. Uh, And this sank in 1911. It had 122 passengers aboard at the time and they all died. Jeez. Yeah. And, uh, And traces of the ship were not found until days later when cargo and wreckage began washing ashore at Cape Bowling Green. Well, that's not fun. And now it's a manta ray habitat. Yeah. So it was believed that the hull of the ship had been ripped open by a submerged rock. And now the wreck has become a tourist attraction and a dive site. Okay. Well, there is a silver lining, I guess. Yeah, right. Providing habitat for mantas. (laughs) We'll go back into it. But those are the exceptions to the rule. For the most part, within a few hundred kilometres of where they've been originally sighted is is what we'll see with their photo identifications or with their tagging data. Yeah. Cool. Is that mainly through photos that you get those huge movements seen? Like is it just people who happen to take a photo of the same manta in different spots? Yeah, so it can be. So uh, on the east coast of Australia, we've had a really successful citizen science program So we get submissions from all around the country. People take these belly shots because the manta rays have this spot pattern on their belly that's unique to each individual. So one, a photograph of the belly. As soon as you've got that image, someone takes an image of that same individual somewhere else on a different day and you've got another mark. And so then you can follow their movements, follow their growth, follow injuries, all kinds of things, pregnancy. So that's how we get a lot of our records. Um, Do they show much differences in behaviour? Are they like pretty each individual is a bit different or, or follow uh, the same sort of path? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that I, because they are such an inquisitive animal, I think we do tend to interpret their behaviour a little bit. Um, so that they, they're quite curious. They have a very large brain, the largest brain to body ratio of any of the fish. And I think, you know, a lot of that is probably to do with their processing. Uh, They have the ampullae of Lorenzini, the um, electrosensory system for picking up all the zooplankton in the water. So likely a lot of the brain capacity goes to detecting prey in the environment. But they actually are these incredibly inquisitive, curious and interactive animals. And so some of them you do come to think are more interactive than others and and they actually use their cephalic lobes, which are the two head fins that they have coming out the top, the things that look like horns. They they seem to use those almost in a communicative kind of way. They furl them when they're getting ready to move off or unfurl them when they're relaxed and 
So, so certainly I think we do interpret these things. I'm always a little bit careful because I do worry that we're anthropomorphizing it a little bit rather than it being what it is. So I'm always a little bit hesitant to say that, but I, I do think there's something there. It's just difficult to, um, to figure out what it is without putting our own bias into it. I, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, I just want to quickly backtrack. Did you, you mentioned that the, they can basically pick up the electrical signals of the zooplankton with their amp- ampullae of Lorenzini. Is that, is, how did we know that? Yeah, well, so, um, you know, like all sharks and rays, they have this ampullae of Lorenzini, um, so the electrosensory system, and they are literally covered in it. So when you, all around their lobes and all around their head, you can see them all, um, all the tiny little ampullae of Lorenzini. And so, uh, the, I mean, that's their, electroma- their electrosensory system. So presumably they're using that to detect prey. Um, mm, they, yeah, okay. yeah they, they do seem to use it to taste the water. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> At the risk of anthropomorphizing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but there has oh, been quite goodness. a bit of work done on that as well. So, yeah. Um, that's awesome. I just sort of assume that something that's small – just would be impossible yeah. to pick up but I, you're right that's what they eat so i mean yeah. it, it makes sense doesn't it <laughs> yeah and it would make sense that they would need a large processing system to account for all that uh, yeah yeah of course just going back you, you, you mentioned that with the jumping at some time to escape predation what what kind of predators do they have uh, yeah, so large sharks will attempt to predate on manta rays. So I often like to call it attempted predation because <laughs> we we see a lot of manta rays with big chunks missing from them, but the animal is well healed and, and getting around just fine. Um, orcas do predate on manta rays though. So you get schools of orca that or pods of orca that will take a manta ray out. And we've seen that they do like the playing behavior with them like they do with the seals. So we, we've seen evidence of that. But yeah, large sharks, so bull sharks, tiger sharks, uh, often the, the bite marks on the trailing edge of the animal. So I think they, you know, stealth attack the manta ray take a bite and that's all they're going to get. The mantas are <laughs> going to take off and, and yeah, the shark's still got a pretty good meal out of it probably. <laughs> they're a big animal. so At least a decent mouthful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I saw um, two of my friends attended, I think, your uh, one of your seminars the other day and they were telling me about a pink manta ray and that just sounds incredible. <laughs> I know it's yeah it doesn't seem real but yes there is one very very pink manta ray out there possibly more but we know of one and and he has been recited about seven times now and he has the same spot pattern so that we can identify him and his markings and everything he does have one patch that's a little bit white on his belly as well and that's that's remained the same throughout the time that we've seen him since 2015 and we managed to sample him in 2016. So we got a small um, tissue sample from him and we were able to confirm that he is highlighter pink <laughs> because it had the little skin plug. And so we put that against a white backdrop and you're like, whoa, yes, that is a pink manta. Because at first I think a lot of people were thinking, is your white balance just a little <laughs> bit messed up? Not sure that could truly exist. Um, 
But yeah, so we've ruled out diet as the cause for this, uh, as the pigment ha- is unchanged through time and he's seen in the same locations as all the other animals. Um, we've ruled out infection. He, he seems healthy and, and this sample was used alongside a number of other samples of the animals to look at the genetics to see if the populations were connected and he, the genetics appeared the same. He fell within the same population cluster Uh, We've had someone look at the histology, so look at the actual skin pigments to see if there's any difference in in how they appear structurally and it's the same. So we haven't investigated our final hypothesis yet, but what we believe is that it's likely um, a result of a rare genetic mutation. And so it's just a different expression of the melanin in the skin. Some of the manta rays are all black individuals. Some of them are all white individuals. And we see that commonly throughout different populations, different frequencies of these color morphs. And this is just the only pink one that we know of as yet. But we have seen him courting a few times. So we keep crossing our fingers that pink babies could be out there. I assume he's got a pretty good chance of courting. He probably sticks out a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, we haven't. Um, I, I know there's a paper coming out soon about their vision. And I, I think that they likely don't have color vision ah, okay. um, because <laughs> that, you know their world their world probably doesn't really require it but um but yeah he certainly doesn't seem to be ostracized by the others <laughs> that's good <laughs> it's not a rudolph situation then <laughs> no <laughs> that's so cool man. what is the courtship uh like between manta rays then have you been lucky enough to see that yeah so uh, so it's female-led, um, as in the female will be out front and she'll be being followed by a number of males. Uh, and she will just be swimming along. A number of males will be following, sometimes up to 20 individuals. More commonly, four or five males will be following the one female. And as she gets ready, closer to, to wanting to mate, she'll actually start doing ever more intricate moves and faster moves and the males behind, it's the one that can keep up with her, that can mirror her movements and match what she's doing that will be lucky to score the prize. (laughs) And when she's actually receptive to mating, the male will bite on to her left pectoral fin, always the left, and they don't have teeth but they've got like a, a little rasping plate in their mouth. So he'll bite onto her wing and the two will go belly to belly and the male has external reproductive organs, claspers, paired claspers. He'll insert his clasper, it'll last all of 30 <laughs> seconds and then the two will go their separate way when he lets go of her fin and um, yeah, then the pregnancy, 12 to 13 months um, gestation. So That's so cool. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty incredible thing to see and the courtship can last, you know, weeks to months kind of thing. So <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll see the same individuals in the same train for a number of, of weeks and then it'll finally happen. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing to watch. And then the female's left with these mating scars on her fin. So it does scratch off some of the dermal denticles, the skin, and you can actually see that she's recently been mated with. That's so crazy. So that's how we, that's the only clues that we have for their reproductive activity <laughs> yeah. with the females. We don't know when a female is sexually mature. We just know when we've seen mating scars on her or if we've seen her visibly pregnant. So when they get to late stage pregnancy, they become quite 
rotund. Um, so they go from being flat pancake shapes to more like stuffed raviolis. <laughs> and, and it's quite evident when a female's pregnant. <laughs> so when they when they give birth, is it just basically a smaller version of a full-size manta ray that comes out? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So the, the pups are born at 1.2 to 1.5 meters disc width. So they're already quite a large animal. Damn. They're rolled up like a burrito and then they come out and the wings unfurl and, yep, fully formed, perfect-looking little manta ray. Although, as I said, um, this has never been observed in the wild. It's still one of those things that researchers are dying to know where it happens and why we don't see it. But there's some thoughts that maybe it happens at depth or maybe it happens in you know, brackish estuaries or something, oh. but yeah, it's, it's never been observed. And these, these are quite a well-studied animal now. So it's quite surprising that we still haven't solved this mystery, but yeah. possibly it's happening at depth and that's why. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> do, do you see the little ones like that are probably very young and just been birthed? pop up like do you have some idea of like where they end yeah, up right after so, that so there's a couple of places in the world that have been kind of labeled nursery habitats for the mantas which means that you're seeing juveniles there um, more commonly than adults but as I said it, like so the males you know are around 10 years old before they're mature so if you're seeing an immature male he could already be five years old so it's difficult to say whether it's it's a young of year. Um, you know, if you see a very small individual under 1.5 metres, it could still already be two years old. They're really slow growing. Right. And so it makes it really difficult to say, oh, yeah, this is, this is near where it's happening because they may have already been out there for a year or more <laughs> when you see them. And also, yeah, estimating the size of them without any instruments in the water is really quite difficult. I, I find estimates range dramatically with with the, with people's um, perception of how big they are. I saw one this big and it just gets bigger each time you tell the story. <laughs> yeah, well, funnily enough, with the larger individuals, people often go the other way. They say, oh, I think oh, okay. it's probably about three metres wide because when they're, when they're swimming, their wings are moving constantly and it's just hard to get that gauge of how wide it really is unless you get really close to it and I often I'll come out of the water with people and they'll say oh did you see that one it was three meters wide and I'm like I think that was more like a five meter individual that's like one of the biggest ones I've ever seen and I so I often don't really give estimates unless I've got instruments in the water I don't give es estimates any less than half a meter, I'll say 3.5, 4.4 meters, you know, but I won't say 3.65 for that one. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say instruments, what kind of instruments do you use to measure them in the water? <laughs> yeah. So, so what's been used quite a bit is lasers. So you have um, stereo labor, lasers on a platform with a camera and you have them a known distance apart, um, and then you need to get perpendicular to the animal, take a photograph with the lasers on the animal, and then you can you can measure how big it is from that. There's issues with that because of water refraction and depending on the distance you are to the animal. So, so it's still not an entirely accurate way to measure them. Um, stereo photography is becoming the way, though. So two GoPros set up on uh, an a known ruler length, you know, 50 centimetres apart or whatever, 
and then you take video and then programs can actually figure that out better better than what the lasers could be done. So that's what's co- more commonly been used. I often am diving with some kind of pole, whether it's for tagging or for taking biopsies or something like that. And so I know my pole's a metre and a half long and so if I get close to them, I'll often kind of just use that and be like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I can use that as a little bit of a gauge with them. Um, yeah. Cool. I was, <laughs> Depending on what you have at the time. <laughs> I was literally picturing just giant rulers in the water. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, we, should, uh, we should probably get into the, the, the numbers. So do, do you know roughly how many reef mantas are actually left? Um, yeah, so I have a good idea about how many have been documented. Um, these photo ID databases that I talked about, they're actually set up all around the world. So on the East Coast here, we've documented uh, over 1,400 individual manta rays. On the West Coast, they've documented about 1,200 individual manta rays. And globally, uh, I, I did a, a big global meta-analysis of using these photo ID databases and there's been documented, I think, around 15,000 manta rays using photo identification at about 25 different aggregation sites. So 5,000 of those are from the Maldives. They've documented the highest manta ray population in the world uh, uh, for reef manta rays. So not many animals for these concentrated efforts. Some of these databases have been going for 20 years covering their key aggregation sites. Uh, So population estimates can be done uh, using these photo ID databases. So population estimates vary a bit. uh, So it's difficult to to kind of put a number on it globally. Uh, But reef manta rays are considered vulnerable to extinction. So that's what their listing is on the IUCN red list. They have certainly seen population declines in parts of the world, uh, but protection measures have come in in a number of of areas of the world, thanks in a, a part to huge conservation efforts from a number of international NGOs that have been working really hard to, to try and get both species protected and and to try and, I guess, provide alternative livelihoods in places where manta rays have been targeted traditionally in the past, um, trying to shift away from that targeted practice and, and shift to something more sustainable. Do, do you have any idea or do we have any idea at all at what they might used to have been sitting at and what sort of de- like declines they may have seen over the last few decades? Yeah, so I guess I'm most familiar with the Australian population and yep. here we've only been monitoring them for less than two decades uh, and what we see is that their populations are likely stable over time here so we haven't had any targeted pressures on them. In other parts of the world, uh, I can think of an example like off the coast of southern Africa, off Mozambique. Uh, there's a population there that's been monitored for, for the last two decades, basically, and they saw, oh, it's a really bad number, something like 88% decline in sightings over a decade. Um, wow. so, so, yeah, their, their populations have been really decimated by targeted fisheries, but 
amazingly at the start of this year, uh, Mozambique declared manta rays protected species and, and that's thanks in huge effort to, to Marine Megafauna Foundation that's been working out of there for the last two decades. So, so that's, that's the, uh, yeah, the worst case kind of figure I can throw across in terms of stats. There's a lot of places like in Indonesia, um, there were fish markets where, where manta rays used to be landed and, and the record showed that about 1,500 animals were being landed a year in one fish market alone. And when you think on the East Coast, we've been monitoring them since 2007 in a really concentrated way and we haven't even documented that many animals. This was happening every year in just one fish market in Indonesia. But uh, some economics work was done about the value of them for tourism and the Indonesian government saw over, uh, changed their views overnight when it was said, you know, a manta ray alive is worth a million dollars in the fish market, it's worth $400. And overnight, both species protected throughout the archipelago and that happened in 2014. So it's, it's pretty amazing, yeah, those kind of efforts that have been made by groups to really show their value of, of keeping them alive. Hey, it's Gabriel here. Going solo on this one, there's no Alex, because I was doing the final edit of this episode and I couldn't get these values of a million dollars alive and $400 dead out of my head. And so I looked it up and it's based off this 2013 study and they estimated how much manta rays are worth to 13 countries around the world, one of which was Indonesia. An individual manta ray alive for its life is worth $1.9 million US dollars. That's over two and a half million Australian dollars. And the value that they say they've seen them sold for on the ground in Indonesia dead is 200 US dollars, which is a little over 260 Aussie dollars. At the time the study came out, they estimated the total tourism value of manta rays in Indonesia alone was over $10 million US, that's over $14 million Australian. And if you include all of the side benefits you get from manta ray tourism, it actually goes up to over 15 million US or 20 million Australian dollars every single year. Obviously, this changes a bit given the current circumstances, but it was enough for the Indonesian government to pass substantial reforms and has led to a stabilisation of reef manta rays in Indonesia. Yeah, so there's still trade going on in the black market, of course, and, you know, a bit underground, but, yeah, it's it's all steps in the right direction. And, and like I said before, I think it's it's very difficult to convince people that have been, you know, making a living out of this for a long time and if they don't have alternative sources of income, 400 US dollars is still a really big amount of money. Yeah. Mm. And so it's important, obviously, to go through all the stages in the conservation process to to make sure they're protected, but that the humans that relied on them in the past have alternatives. Yeah. I mean, it's a million dollars alive, but if they don't see any of that, the decision is still 400 versus zero, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Feed my children or don't feed my children. Yeah. What's the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in terms of threats on a sort of wide scale, is it mainly targeted killings or bycatch? Do you, is there one thing that leads the way over the rest? Yeah, so um, manta rays are actually highly valued for traditional Chinese medicine for the use of their gill plates. Uh, so that's their gills, the highly modified organs that they use for sieving the zooplankton out of the water. Those have 
recently become highly valued in traditional Chinese medicine. So I'm not sure how traditional it is, (laughs) but it's basically been over the last decade or so, there's been this really targeted push uh, for these gill rakers that are highly valued and then the meat is just sold as cheap meat. So in a lot of situations, it's that targeted fishery that is driving the declines. Um, Certainly in places, artisanal fisheries will catch them and land them, you know, and feed the whole village, you know, one animal, but they're, they're not the ones driving those drastic declines and neither is bycatch or, or shark control programs. Those are the exceptions rather than the targeted fishery, which is really driving the big declines. Uh, this might, I mean, it can be a bit of a depressing question, but um, <laughs> do, do you think that in, uh, maybe, maybe not the next like 10 or 20, but in the next 50 or 100 years, do you think that these reef manta rays will still be around? I do. I I guess I can see the, I mean, so if we're looking at fisheries, I, I do believe that there is enough conservation effort being pushed in that direction that there will at least be a number of populations, even if not all populations make it. Yes, I do think there will be a number of populations safe from fisheries pressure. I think manta rays are this incredible, I guess, ambassador species for conservation where everyone gets excited about them. That uh, It's one of the reasons that I really like working with them because, yes, they're just a big flappy fish and, you know, why do we all care so much? But people do. And so then it, it gives you that kind of gateway to talking about all these other conservation issues that possibly it may not be as easy to lead into as when you talk about something like the poster child, a manta ray that everyone loves and wants to see. The flip side of that is obviously it's very difficult to predict in 50 to 100 years where what our oceans are going to be looking like uh, with other global changes underfoot. So, uh, you know, we've already seen that their prey distribution is changing. So zooplankton has been observed making changes in their distribution. Manta rays are, uh, you know, shifting range as well with changing temperatures. That is a much bigger question mark to me in terms of what what our reefs are going to be looking like if, if they're treatment that they get from those little cleaner wrasse in is really important to their ecology if they require that cleaning behavior every single day and coral reefs are decimated in 50 years time then i don't know will these cleaner wrasse be living on on rocky reefs without live corals maybe they will and maybe the mantras will be okay but i don't know i think I think there's there's a lot bigger ecosystem stuff at play. Uh, at the moment, fisheries are the biggest pre- pressure, but I, I don't know going forward if if changing climate will present a bigger pressure to not just them, but yeah, the whole ecosystem that supports them. Yeah. So yeah, on the flip side as well, like you mentioned, maybe the, if the reefs aren't there, where will the rafts go? But if you do lose some populations of these rays. Do you think that that will have an impact as well, pulling out such a massive species from an ecosystem? Yeah, so I, I've uh, dwelled on that question a little bit because I often, I think, try to justify why I work on, with charismatic megafauna. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, I do think that they serve an important role and, and we haven't quantified this, 
with bringing offshore nutrients into reef systems. So reef systems are actually, you know, that incredible circulation of nutrients. They use every little bit, but they're actually really nutrient poor because it's all going into all the organisms that live there. The waters themselves are crystal clear because there's nothing in them. And so manta rays are accessing those offshore waters. They're feeding on these plankton from depth and bringing that all the nutrients from those upwelling systems and everything like that. And they're basically coming and pooing on the reefs and, and providing that kind of nutrient input to the reef environment. So I, I don't know if they disappeared, if, if there would be some great loss, but certainly their group, their functional role with other species like them could be lost. Mm. And then, but you were also talking about how there's such a huge protection effort now. We often on land talk about how there's sort of overarching species or charismatic species that we protect and we get other ones as a side effect. Koalas. You know, we, like we protect the koala <laughs> and we get the sugar glider, right? Yeah. Like that's the idea. But I feel like in the marine space with an animal like a manta ray, you were saying how big their range is. If you can protect a manta ray, surely you end up protecting at least <laughs> something else in that range, right? 100%. Yeah. And and I yeah, I completely agree with you. That's I, I think that's one of those the reasons I'm really interested in their spatial ecology, looking at their habitat use and going, okay, what is this ecosystem? Uh, the whole lot matters. It's not just one animal in a vacuum. And, and of course, you protect that animal, it uses all those different habitats and it's a conservation win for sure. Definitely. Um, should we get into the audience questions? Yeah, no worries. Awesome. Um, so uh, <laughs> Liz, after watching watching your uh, seminar, I wanted to know, have you – ever swum with the pink manta? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> um, so I've been on the island when my colleague like got the sample from the pink manta, but I wasn't on the dive for whatever reason. Uh, no, I still have yet to see the pink manta. And every time someone sends me a new sighting of the pink manta, it's I'm, I'm kind of happy and kind of a little bit jealous. Or <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Totally get that. So, yeah, no, no one's bitter about this. Don't worry. (laughs) Uh, Peter asked, are there any mantas that you can recognize just on site straight away? Uh, Peter, it is my party trick. I don't know if it's a lame one, (laughs) but I probably know about half of the manta rays from the East Coast population by sight. I have spent far too long looking at their spots and people initially when I say this are like, that's so cool. And then I think once you compute it, you're like, yeah, she just, she can, yep, okay. That's what she does, isn't it? (laughs) Like I just sit in front of my computer screen looking at manta ray delis all day long, Um, which I don't, but I have far too much. So, yes, I can recognize a lot of them on site. I'll come up after a dive and I'll say, that was that one, that was that one. And, of course, whoever I'm saying it to wouldn't know the difference anyway, so I could be saying anything. But I'm, I'm telling the truth most of the time. Do you have any favorites that you look out for? I do. I've named a few mantas after family members and that kind of thing. So I, I do get really excited when I see some of them. I get excited when I see ones that – there's a cool story about them, like Taurus, the oldest manta ray. If I see him, I'm always a bit like, oh, it's Taurus. That's good. He's still kicking on. Um, but, yeah, so, that no, there's definitely a few or ones that I know have done funny movements if they've been in different places and then I see them turn up somewhere else. I'll be quite excited if I see them. So, 
yeah. <laughs> and then there's some that I think their spot patterns are just beautiful. And so I mm-hmm. get excited when I see those. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So Greg wanted to know just how intelligent are they? Well, yeah, I think, as I said before, I find it a really difficult question because, you know, it's that whole thing, you know, a fish is as smart as it is, but if you ask it to climb a tree, then you'll think it's stupid. Um, So I think, you know, they do have the highest brain to body ratio of any fish. They are quite interactive and curious and inquisitive. And and I think we think those traits kind of imply a higher intelligence. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think, I think they probably are quite smart for what they need to be smart to do. <laughs> I, but I, I don't know. I don't, I, yeah, I find the question of intelligence with animals a difficult one because we're all, you know, we've all had a million mutations to get to where we are and we're successful or we wouldn't survive. So yeah. I think they're quite successful at what they do. (laughs) (laughs) Feeding on plankton in nutrient-poor waters in the tropics, they're very good at it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a much better way of looking at it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we're cutting in for one last time here because it is time for the first official installment of Alex's mum's question time. (laughs) My mum, the lovely Sue was actually, I was going to say, I copped a bit of heat from her, from last episode oh, really? because she pointed out to me that she's Sue or Suzanne, but never Susan. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I didn't pull you up on it and she was like, that is not my name. Alex. <laughs> oh, no. I think I think I say that again right now. <laughs> no. But... Love you, mum, and your constant questions are keeping this show going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well, this is the first ever Subi's Question Time. Man, I think I'm going to butcher it in the first one. <laughs> Here we go. The last one comes from Susan, who wants to know what your coolest manta ra- swimming with manta ray story is. Like, after you've told people at the party that you can ID them on site, what's the story you bust out? <laughs> um... So I had this encounter in WA one time when I was uh, doing some work over there on Ningaloo Reef and over there, I'm not sure what it is, but there's a number of, and it often is the juveniles, there's a number of juveniles that will approach you and look at you as if they've never seen a human before and they're really interested and Manta ray's vision is quite forward and downward facing, so they can't see peripherally, they can't see above them. They can see down and forward quite well. So if you're swimming above one, that's not really good for the manta because it can't see you. So they'll actually flip onto their back and they'll swim under you looking at you and I've dived down and swum belly to belly with these animals just looking at you and you're just looking at them and you're like, who's studying who here? But yeah, just these incredible interactions, just swimming belly to belly with the animal. And it's, it's, it can only be doing it to be like, what are you? And, mm. and I don't know why it happens over there more frequently, but I've had that happen there a number of times, much less on this coastline. And yeah, I, I think that's pretty magical. Yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Oh, maybe one day. One day I'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually have one of my own because I once was um, snorkeling on the reef and saw what I was pretty sure was a manta ray at the time. It was off in the distance, so it was like a, a very faded look at what I thought was a manta ray. But then learnt about a year later that there are other rays called devil rays that look kind of similar to a manta ray. Yeah. Do they get confused a lot? And like, what? How do you tell the difference between them? Yeah, they do. So, um, so there's a the whole family is called the Mobulidae. So it's made up of basically there was a taxonomic revision recently. So I'm going to say about seven species of devil rays or mobula rays, and then two species of manta rays. And they all have the horns out the front, so hence the devil ray thing. But the the mobulas or the devil rays are quite a bit smaller than the manta rays. One of the species can grow up to about three metres wide, but you'll more commonly see them one to two metres mm-hmm. wide. There's about four different species we get along this coastline on, on east um, or around the Australian coastline. The best way to tell them apart is, one, the size, uh, two, Devil rays have their mouth on the bottom of the animal. So manta rays is out the front. They've got a terminal mouth out the front of the animal. Mm -hmm. Devil rays is on the bottom. And if you see a group of rays, like a fever of of what you think are manta rays or devil rays, they are more likely mobular rays. So a number of them do school like that. And so if you see them doing like that typical schooling behavior where they're kind of swimming together, that's more likely going to be devil rays. I've never seen manta rays doing that behavior. They are more solitary animals unless they're exploiting a resource, whereas the devil rays can school like that. So they they are more at risk of bycatch in, you know, trawl fisheries and things like that because they, you know, even in the bycatch programs for sharks, uh, the shark um, control programs, we've had reports of like up to 70 mobular rays caught on one net because they school together. Um huh. So, yeah, the, so I, if you saw a devil ray or a manta ray, either way, it's really cool. Like I say this to people, they say, oh, I saw a, I saw a um, pod of baby manta rays. And I say, <laughs> oh, I think it probably wasn't baby manta rays. But if you saw a group of devil rays, that's really exciting. We know far less about them than we know about manta rays. They're really understudied because they don't turn up predictably anywhere around our coastline. So to get to see one of them in the water, I've only had a few sightings in my life and it's it's really cool. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to keep telling myself it was a manta ray in my mind. It's the memory's manta. I feel like I've almost like overwritten the memory now to make it look like a manta ray, so I'm just going to keep that. Yeah, so it doesn't matter what distinguishing characteristics that's I right. tell you. You're like, oh, yeah. yes. Oh, that's what it was. Definitely yeah. had that front mouth. <laughs> Uh, but I guess we should get to our our final question of the episode Um, if you had one take-home manta ray conservation message or just conservation message in general what do you think it would be I I I guess it's 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 probably about the connectedness of everything so I I just think you know, as individuals, we may think that our actions don't mean too much because, you know, governments and corporations are are pulling these atrocities all the time. But the way that we remain motivated is by taking action, isn't it? And so whatever you do, whatever small steps you take, you are, you know, that drop in the ocean and we all make up the ocean. And so I, I do think, you know, communicating to friends and family about your concerns about conservation, about your concerns about climate change 
every one of us that speaks up and takes these small actions every day may trigger someone else to do the same thing. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's, it's awesome to um, celebrate the, the natural world and, and all its biodiversity. Uh, but I think linking it all together into that picture and knowing that we are part of nature, we're not separated from it, is, is the way for us to recognise that it not only relies on us, we rely on it and we've got to take care of it to, for our own survival, if, if for nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty great message. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, all the questions we have. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome. <laughs> uh, no worries. It was really fun. <laughs> Glad to hear Sweet. It. Episode 10 of Life on the Brink was produced on the lands of the Turrbal, Yagara and Gurungai people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you once again to Asia Haynes for monologuing Mantas with us. Project Manta is on Facebook and at projectmanta.org if you want to keep track of what they're up to or start submitting your own photos to help their research. If you've got a second, please rate and leave a review for Life on the Brink wherever you're listening to this. And find us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Brink Podcast or on Twitter at A Life on the Brink. Follow us on Instagram if you want to submit your own questions for us to ask in these interviews. If you've just found us, the first nine Life on the Brinks are already out wherever you're hearing this or you can find them at lifeforthebrinkpodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another bonus episode featuring some of the stories we couldn't quite cram into this interview. Thanks to Agus Bazina for running the website. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. TTFN. <laughs> TTFN, we're at double digits. <laughs> <laughs> TTFN, Alex, what's it mean? Ta-ta for now. <laughs> 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 Oh, God. <laughs>